Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. It's National Adoption Month, and today on the show, we are talking about the law concerning gestational surrogacy. My guest today is Rachel Lofspring. Rachel is an attorney with Essex and Evans, LLP, working exclusively in fertility law. She counsels helpful parents and surrogates on the legal aspects of their collaborative reproduction journey so that they can focus on what matters the most, building their family. Rachel's clients are from the United States and around the world and include singles and couples of all sexual orientation. Rachel, welcome to ASRM today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to start by asking you, what are some important things that doctors should know about surrogacy, such as things like when is the right medical clearance to move on to legal things and and what exactly would that legal clearance be? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there are a number of places where within a surrogacy journey, the doctors and the lawyers overlap. So you brought up the first one, that that medical clearance piece. So um, when a potential carrier goes to her doctor, she needs to have medical clearance to move forward. We as the attorneys like to make sure that she has medical clearance to proceed before we start the legal process. And so um, we look to the doctors for that. You know, we, we very often have uh, intended parents who are excited to get moving forward. They want to get moving forward as fast as possible. And my advice is always, no, let's, let's wait until you have that medical clearance to move forward to legal so that we know you're actually moving forward and you're not, you're not spending time, you're not spending resources on that legal process that maybe is a moot point because she doesn't have legal clearance. One thing that's really helpful for the attorneys, uh, along with medical clearance, if when it's possible for the doctors to share with with their patients, our clients, or even with the attorney, um, what the deadline is for an upcoming embryo transfer. You know, the legal process takes time, and and I would say an average of four to six weeks uh, to to negotiate, uh, finalize, and sign the agreement. So it's really helpful to us to know what the doctor's schedule is and the hoped-for transfer date so that we can work towards that. It can help everything move really smoothly. Once we negotiate the contract, the lawyers then send what's called a letter of legal clearance to the doctor saying these parties can move forward with the embryo transfer. And so there are a number of things that I typically include in my letter of legal clearance. So I include the number of embryo transfers that the parties have agreed to. You know, there's often several attempts. I'd say middle of the road is three, but that can be really dependent on the parties. I know in my contract, I keep it fairly broad. You know, we, we lay out the number to manage expectations. Things can happen to make that less. And then we also make it broad to say something along the lines of, you know, if you're within your time period to have the transfers, if the parties want to and the doctor agrees, then you could do another transfer. So we provide that information to the doctor. We also talk about that time period in which to have the transfer attempts. That's typically a year, sometimes 18 months. And then the number of embryos that will be transferred in each procedure. And and this is with much deference to the doctor. Um, A lot of the times, uh, doctors, patients, our clients are coming to us and saying, look, we're only doing single embryo transfer for for the medical reasons uh, that that the doctors talk about often. My job is to put into the agreement what's been agreed to. When we put something like a single embryo transfer in there, we can always include language that says, you know, if the doctor and the parties agree, then they could consider doing another embryo within a transfer. But that, again, is, is with much deference to the doctor. So then it's not unusual to, in a standard contract like this, to go ahead and and just say, 
put the language in at least that there can be a second session, you know, in case the first doesn't take. That's so, so that's you're saying that's not right. abnormal. Okay. That's absolutely right. I, I'd say typical is about three embryo transfer procedures within a year. Well, let me ask you then about doctor affidavits. Why exactly are they needed and what would what are some of the best practices with them? Yeah, that's a great question. Sometimes I, I wonder what doctors think when we send them these affidavits. So, so there's two reasons generally, and each state has different law, but there's two big reasons that a lawyer could be sending a doctor an affidavit. For us in Ohio, it's for the pre-birth order. So we are asking the doctor for his or her medical opinion that the embryo being transferred is the embryo of the intended parents or the intended parents, um, and really showing the chain of custody of that embryo. Um, the doctor is then giving medical opinion that that the embryo belongs to the intended parents, not the gestational carrier, and if there's a genetic link saying that as well. Some states, not Ohio, but some states do require that genetic link, so that, that could be really important. There are other states where the contract itself might need to have an affidavit. In some states, there's actually requirements that the parents have a medical need for surrogacy, and so a doctor might need to give an affidavit for that. From a logistical standpoint, you know, usually affidavits need to be notarized, and it's really helpful if a fertility clinic has a notary on staff or easily available so that that can be done quickly. We love it when doctors can get affidavits back to us within a week. It, it helps things out a lot, but I know it puts a lot of pressure on them if they don't have a notary, and it's one more thing to add on to a very busy schedule when they don't have that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because that was going to be a follow-up question for me is that you currently practice law in Ohio. So for our medical professionals out there, it literally is a state-to-state decision about certain aspects of surrogacy law. It can, it can be it's basically different in every state. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So surrogacy law varies dramatically state by state. Uh, some states have statutory law that says, you know, do X, Y, Z, and that equals C, and that's surrogacy. Other states are not surrogacy friendly at all, and it's, it can be criminal to do surrogacy. That's becoming less and less, but the, there is still that kind of law out there. Um, other states, such as Ohio, it's based on case law uh, that says that surrogacy is not prohibited by public policy. So it's really important to have uh, a fertility law attorney because just like medicine, we are specialized. And so you know you want to go to the type of lawyer who practices the type of law that you need in the jurisdiction at issue. And so often that's based on where the intended parents live, where the surrogate lives, and then also importantly, where she's going to deliver. And fertility law attorneys are accustomed to dealing with cross-jurisdictional issues and kind of working amongst ourselves to see, okay, how, how is it best situated for these particular parties? You know, who makes sense to represent the intended parents? Who makes sense to represent the surrogate? Um, you know, you could have a situation where a party is moving. Do we need to get another attorney involved to make sure that, that the language of the contract and what we're going to do for the process of parentage works there? So there's a lot of conversation that goes into every single matter when it comes to the law that applies. So let let me ask you this then. Let's talk about the actual gestational carrier then. What type of agreement is common? What's covered in a gestational carrier's agreement that medical professionals might need to know? Right. Yeah. Great question. So, you know, fundamentally, the reason we're all here, the purpose and intent is for her to have transferred into a uterus, her, excuse me, her uterus, an embryo belonging to the intended parent or the intended parents for her to gestate and hopefully deliver a child that is then 
the child of the intended parent. So that's that's the whole reason we're here. Um, but we are laying out the rights and obligations of the parties. We're laying out protections for the parties. Um, I know the issue of money comes up a lot and there's a lot of questions around that. When it comes to expenses, I think of it as two buckets. So you've got the first bucket, which is base compensation, and that's what she gets paid for you know, her pain and suffering, her service, the risk that she's taking on. We're not paying for a baby. We're paying for those things. And so that's the first bucket. And then the other bucket are her expenses. So what the intended parents are covering and how much. And this can vary dramatically based on the parties, based on where they are, because there are regional differences in what's covered and how much. And so that's something that's negotiated as well in the agreement. You know, we are talking about the lifestyle changes that she's going to make. Um, here again, in my contracts at least, I put out the basics that we would expect from any pregnant woman, but we defer a lot to the doctors and we look to the doctors to make medical advice, to make recommendations for for the parties, um, what happens in the event of a disagreement, and then also what's the plan for parentage? What needs to happen in this case to make sure that the parentage is appropriate, that the intended parents will be the legal parents of the child that's being gestated? My guest today is Rachel Lofspring, who is an attorney with Essex and Evans in Ohio. She works exclusively in fertility law. You know, it's the elephant in the room these days. We've got to talk about the COVID vaccine. So, how has the COVID vaccine changed anything having to do with gestational carriers agreement or any of these affidavits? Right. So the vaccine, like all vaccines, is something that we talk about in the agreement. The The conversation, I think, in our negotiations, just as nationally, has gotten a lot more intense and heated. I see everything from she may not have a vaccine, even if the doctor says it, we're not going to move forward, to she must have a vaccine, we're not moving forward unless she has a vaccine, and kind of everything in between. It is really helpful to us to know if the clinic is going to require a vaccine of the carrier up front, because we certainly don't want to be negotiating anything in the contract that is not consistent with what the doctor requirements are. And so if you are doing that for your clinic, um, it would be great to let your patient and our clients know that ahead of time. And if you are working regularly with certain attorneys, let them know so that they can um, also advise their patients of that. It's one of the many new things that have come up in our conversations, not just about vaccines, but COVID in general within the, within the negotiation context. Uh, is there anything that doctors need to know about referrals as far as as far as this whole uh, legal jumble goes <laughs> right so you know um one question that comes up a lot in terms of referrals is does everybody need a referral so that they're represented and and to me that answer is absolutely yes i actually would never be involved in a negotiation of a carrier agreement where both parties are not represented. You know, the parties have different interests. Everybody has a shared goal, but they have different interests. And both parties, whether it's, you know, intended parents are one party, if it's single or plural, same with carrier, if it's single or plural, her spouse or partner. And so they need somebody who is on their team, 
who can really explain to them what the situation that they're getting into means so that we have informed consent. So when we're thinking about referrals, we want to make sure that we are giving referrals for, for both sides of the arrangement. You know, I'm often asked for referrals for attorneys and also for doctors. And I know one thing that I do is I give a list because one attorney might not be a great fit for somebody, but might be a great fit for somebody else. And so we want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to pick their person just as they would pick their doctor. The jurisdiction becomes an issue too. So if you're somebody who has patients in multiple states, you you might want to reach out to a lawyer that you know that you work with often that, that might be able to help guide you with, with a good referral list for somebody else, uh, or excuse me, someplace else. And then the other thing I would say is talk to your patients. If you make a referral, ask them how it went because they'll provide great feedback that is um, timely, and then you'll know it for the future going forward. Well, Rachel, I got one more question for you before we run out of time. Can you speak a little bit about some of the pitfalls for surrogacy, especially as it relates to to a medical professional? Sure. So... uh, A big one for me is not being on the same page about gating issues. So something like termination, you know, do the parties have the same belief system when it comes to abortion or selective reduction? Because if they don't, this is really not a match that should move forward. Also, moving on to legal before you have medical clearance, I mean, sometimes parties want to do that and they understand the risk, but it can also lead to a lot of heartache if they don't have medical clearance and now they're already down the road with legal. I've only had this happen once, but it was a huge uh uh-oh. So as I mentioned, we send a letter of legal clearance stating the time within which transfers can take place, and that's by agreement of the parties. And I have had a a doctor transfer an embryo outside of that time. So you're essentially outside of the agreement, and, and that can be really problematic because if there was a change in mind and somebody now doesn't want to go through with the surrogacy, then then you've got an issue. Um, fortunately, in that case, we were able to kind of retroactively go back and fix it, but you really want to make sure you're within the time frame that's put out in the letter. And that's why it's so important that you're getting that information that is relevant to the doctor in the letter of legal clearance being sent to you by, by the attorney. And then, you know, always, always a pitfall is trying to save money. And I know this process is expensive and and my heart goes out to folks because of the expense, but trying to save money by not using a lawyer, not using a doctor, not going through the mental health professionals, in the long run, it does not save money and it it certainly can create a lot of heartache. Well, Thank you so much for being able to take time out of your schedule to to be with us today to discuss this because I know we get a lot of questions here at ASRM from our membership about, you know, law concerning gestational surrogacy and just just law questions in general. So we're we're trying to educate our membership base a little bit more by having some episodes uh, with lawyers in, in, in different areas. Uh, Rachel Lofspring, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Please rate and subscribe the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your media downloads from. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council.
The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.